So we've already said or sung the word peace a number of times this morning. The Charter of the United Nations uses the word peace 47 times. In fact, the first statement in the preamble to the UN Charter reads, We the peoples of the United Nations determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. It's a pretty lofty goal. To save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. Guess how many days the world has been without war since that was signed? None. Zero. Now, we need more than just the absence of war. That's not what we're talking about. We need peace on all levels, right? We need inner peace, peace of mind. You want to keep the peace with cousin so-and-so at Thanksgiving, right? We need peace on all levels. But peace seems so elusive. And all the presidents and diplomats and ambassadors and mediators can't seem to bring us peace. That's because true, lasting peace only comes from the Prince of Peace. Peace isn't just a major theme in the UN Charter. It's a major theme in the Bible. It's mentioned over 180 times in the Old Testament. Paul says the word peace 50 times in his writings. And it's a a major emphasis in Jesus' teachings. Now this morning as we talk about peace as a fruit of the Spirit, I want us to think about how this fruit can come in two varieties. You know, kind of like you have Honeycrisp apples. How many of y'all like Honeycrisp apples? I mean, come on, isn't that the the best apple there is, isn't there? And then there's Granny Smith apples, which is great for baking, but you don't necessarily just want to bite into it and eat it up. Anybody like to just bite into a Granny Smith apple? You're weird. I'm just kidding. So, peace comes in two varieties. There's, there's a peace that we enjoy that makes us peaceful. That's one variety. But then there's the peace that we employ that makes us peaceable. That's a different variety. We're going to talk about both of those. But, but we're also going to talk about three ways. We're going to talk about those two in, in three ways that we can pursue and experience real, lasting peace. So, when we talk about a peace that we can enjoy that makes us peaceful, we're talking about, first and foremost, a peace with God. We can have peace with God. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, and Matt Matt read this earlier, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most important kind of peace we can have. Is peace with our Creator. Peace with God. Because if we're not at peace with God, we can't really experience peace in our lives or our relationships. This is a foundational peace. And Paul tells us here that we can only have that peace with God when we are justified. And we need to be justified. We need to be made right with God because as sinners, we're at war with God. We're at war with God. Colossians 1.21, Paul says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But God doesn't want us to be His enemies. In fact, God wants us to be His children. And the only way that we can experience forgiveness of sins and to be made right with God, the only way lasting peace can be achieved that turns enemies into allies, and even into God's own children, is if God Himself paid the price 
for our rebelliousness. Paul goes on in Romans 5 verse 10 to explain how that happened. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? See, sin separates us from God. Sin makes us enemies with God. But God, through the person of Jesus Christ, took our punishment. He paid the price for our sins to reconcile us, to make us right with God. God's holiness and justice were satisfied on the cross, but God's love was also demonstrated on the cross. And that's what this Lord's Supper table represents for us today. I know it was across a marble-topped table that General Robert E. Lee sat down from General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse and signed the documents of surrender, thus ending the war between the states and bringing healing and peace and unity once again to this country. And just as you can go and look at that table, I think it's in a museum in Chicago, or you can go to Appomattox Courthouse and look at a replica of it, and just as you can look at that table and be reminded of the peace that was forged, we can look at this table and remember the peace that Jesus Christ has provided for us. It's as if on the cross Christ signed a peace treaty so that we no longer had to be at war with a holy God. And we can walk daily with Him and someday sit at His heavenly banquet table. That's what this table reminds us of. The peace that we can have with God. And that peace with God, as we daily abide with Him, it produces a spiritual fruit of peace in us that we can enjoy. Because we are at peace with God, we can enjoy the second kind of peace, and that is the peace of God. Jesus said, in John 14:27, "Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid." The peace of God is the opposite of fear and anxiety. When we have God's peace in our hearts, our hearts won't be troubled. There's nothing that we really should be afraid of when the peace of God is in our hearts. And this isn't just some generic kind of peace. Jesus said, this is my peace. My peace I give to you. And He doesn't give it to us the way the world gives us peace. Instead, He gives it as we allow the Holy Spirit to produce His fruit in and through us. And as He does that, the peace of Christ is ours. No matter what's going on in our lives, we can have the peace of God. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Just like with love, we talked about a few weeks ago, just like with joy, we talked about last week, God's peace can be ours in every circumstance. It doesn't matter what's going on in our lives, we can have the peace of God. Because that peace isn't something that, that, that is just based on circumstances. Oh, I'm not fighting with so-and-so, I have peace. That's an outward circumstance. No, this is an inner quality of our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit being developed within us. And that kind of peace can be hard to comprehend. When the world is falling down around us to be able to stand with peace in our hearts... That's why Paul in our New Testament reading said that this peace transcends all understanding because we can't understand it. 
But remember that this amazing transcendent peace, it guards. Paul said it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It guards our feelings and our thoughts. Let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. Now how does this virtue of peace as a part of the fruit of the Spirit, how does this live and grow and develop within us? Well, there's a process. Just like a tomato plant. If you want to go pull a nice, ripe, homegrown tomato, that tomato started off on that plant as a, as a flower, as a bud, right? And then it flowered and then began to produce a fruit that had to grow and it had to ripen before you could pick that off and eat it. Well, there's a similar progression for how fruit, the fruit of peace grows in our lives. And it starts with suffering. Look with me at Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. So where does this peace begin? Well, it begins with suffering. Now, we don't, we don't like to suffer, do we? Anybody like to suffer? No, we don't like to suffer. We hate it. No one wants to experience a crisis, but we know that they will come. Everyone in this room either has or will experience hardship. But the beautiful truth is that as much as we hate crisis, God loves to take crisis and turn it around for our good. Paul says in Romans 8:28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So when we inevitably face a crisis, a time of suffering or hardship in our lives, God knows something that we don't. God knows that His grace is sufficient. God knows that He can redeem even the worst that can happen to us and use it for our good. God knows that He can take a crisis and use it like a scalpel to cut out the cancer of sin, to prune the branches of our lives so that we'll be healthier and more fruitful and better followers of Christ. When God is developing peace in us, when you've got that peace that's growing in your heart as a fruit of the Spirit, then you're not going to overreact when plans go awry. You know, maybe at work a project gets hung up, a deal falls through, a customer leaves unhappy. How do you respond to that crisis? Do you run around like the world's ending? Do you wring your hands? Do you panic? Do you curse and yell? If God's peace is developing within you, you should approach it with the calm assurance, God's got this. I may not know how this is going to work out, I may not know how this is all going to come together and, and get fixed, but I trust in the one who does. I trust that God sees things that I don't see, and He's going to help me figure it out. He's going to make it right, and He's going to see me through. And when we have that kind of trust in God in times of trial, in times of crisis and suffering, then we will develop the second part of the process, and that's perseverance. Perseverance is simply the ability to wait on God. That's what it is. The ability to wait on God. And, and people who melt down in times of crisis, well, they're depending on themselves. They're depending on their stuff. They're depending on other people. They're not depending 
ultimately on the Lord. And that's why God loves to use those times of suffering to produce peace in us. Because they teach us to rely on the God who is faithful. The one who is the shelter in the storms. The God who is the solid rock upon which we can stand when everything around us is sinking sand. And when you're facing difficulties at work or at home, or kids, when you're facing difficult times at school, maybe with your health, or financially, whatever it is, and you pray about it, whatever it is you're facing, if you pray about that, God is going to answer that in one of two ways. God will either miraculously intervene. He's going to step into that situation. He's going to change so-and-so's heart. He's going to mend that broken relationship. He's going to miraculously intervene and bring healing or bring financial provision. He's going to open some door. God is either going to step in because guess what? God is still in the miracle working business. Amen? God still hears and answers our prayers. God will either do that or if He doesn't, God will give you the grace His all-sufficient grace to bear up under whatever it is that you're facing. To not just survive, but to thrive through that crisis. He will give you the peace, the patience, the strength, the wisdom, the joy, the faith that you need to endure or adapt or to bring Him glory as you boldly live through that time of suffering. And I want to tell you, that is just as much an answered prayer. That is just as much a miracle, maybe even more so. But we persevere as we wait on God. And then that perseverance, Paul says, develops character. When we persevere through our trials, we develop a more Christ-like character. Peace and perseverance no longer have to become something that I have to intentionally choose because it becomes ingrained in me. It becomes my immediate default to trust in the Lord and not panic. Every time you experience a crisis, big or small, it gives you an opportunity to sort of exercise your spiritual muscles so that you develop a better defined and stronger character like being a person of peace. The fruit of the Spirit really is just the character of Christ being expressed through us. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. And, and it's not easy to grow in love, is it? We talked about that a few weeks ago. It, it requires we have to widen our love to love even our enemies and to deepen our love so that we sacrifice for others. Growing in love isn't easy. Growing in joy isn't easy. It means that we have to, we have to stop putting so much emphasis in, in, in worldly pleasures. It means that we have to develop more gratitude and less, you know, stuff-itis. It means that we have to deny ourselves and sometimes... We learn joy through the classroom of the school of hard knocks. And growing in peace isn't easy either. You can think of crisis as that terrifying, stern, hard-to-please teacher that nobody wanted, right? Somebody just popped in your head. I know they did. (laughs) Yet years later, you look back on that teacher and you're thankful they were hard on you, right? Or maybe it was a coach. And you're thankful they pushed you. And they had high standards. So at the time it wasn't pleasant, but now you look back and realize you wouldn't be who you were today without them. That's the way crisis and suffering can be in our lives and helping us grow as people of peace. Because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and from character springs hope. 
Now, hope and peace are two closely related words. In fact, hope can be described as having a peace about the future, right? When you have hope, you've got this peace about what is unknown. And this is the final product of this growth process. We receive this peace through that abiding relationship with Christ as His Spirit works in us. Paul says we can have peace through prayer and petition and thanksgiving. In our New Testament reading, he linked peace with what we allow our minds to dwell upon and think about. We can have peace. So the first variety of peace, we said, was a peace that we enjoy, right? That makes us peaceful because we have peace with God and the peace of God. But the second variety is a, is a peace that we employ. It makes us peaceable. And so the third way that we can pursue peace is to seek to have peace with others. We can have peace with others. The Beatitudes tell us to be peacemakers. Followers of Jesus should be bringers of peace. We should be bridgers of gaps. We should not only enjoy the fruit of love, joy, and peace, but we should be casting those seeds into the lives of people around us. Paul said in Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. So he's talking to the church, he's talking about how we can be as one as the church, how with all of our different thoughts and opinions and personalities and preferences, how can we come together and be one? He says the peace of Christ has to rule in our hearts. Now, I did a little word study. The Greek word there for rule, it's the word that means literally the person who presides over a contest and declares the winner. Today we might say that person is an umpire, right? What Paul is saying here literally is the peace of Christ is to be the umpire of our hearts. Now, can you imagine how chaotic a baseball game would be without an umpire? Could you imagine if the pitcher and the batter got to argue after every throw whether that was a ball or a strike? It would be chaos. Could you imagine a football game without referees or a basketball game or a hockey game? Well, I guess they'd all be like hockey games, wouldn't they? Yeah. They'd all just be like hockey games. And in the same way, without Christ's peace ruling, umpiring, refereeing in our hearts, our relationships would be chaos. It'd be like a free-for-all at a hockey game. So let's think for a minute about this peace with others. First of all, I want to show you two things it's not. Peace with others is not pretending that everything is okay. That's not what that means. You know the difference between a truce and a treaty? A truce is just a timeout so you can reload. That's all it is. Simply ceasing hostilities is not peace. Just because you and your spouse have stopped fighting, it doesn't mean there's peace in your relationship. It could mean you've just disengaged. It could mean that you've just, you just don't care anymore. It could mean that you've given up the fight for your marriage. When we're in a truce... You're just one wrong word from hostilities resuming, right? And shots firing once again. So peace is not pretending that everything's okay. Nor is peace passivity, right? Pacifism is sort of peace at any cost. And Christ doesn't call us to be doormats just to let people walk over us. Some people think, well, the only way to keep the peace is just to let them have their way. If you know anybody who that's their parenting philosophy, you know what a joy their children are, right? So neither pretending nor passivity are the path to peace with others. Rather, 
Peace is pursuing reconciliation. Peace is pursuing reconciliation. To have peace with others, to be a peacemaker, means that you're both making peace with others, with those people that you're at odds with, that you've been hurt by, or that you've hurt. It's making peace with them, but it's also making peace for others. It's bringing peace into relationships that you see around you. Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. That's the key, isn't it? The Jimmy Carter Center in Atlanta, if you've ever been there, it's a really fascinating place there with his library. It has as its first purpose to wage peace. I love that. I think that's a brilliant image, the idea of waging peace. Could you imagine... What if we waged peace in our homes, in our schools, in our places of work? What if we were as strategic at being peacemakers as the military are at fighting and winning battles? What if we took that kind of intentionality to wage peace? I like that. But at the Carter Center, it also, they state as one of their goals to understand why conflicts arise in the first place. Why do nations wage war against nations? Why can't we all just get along? Well, the Bible gives us an answer to that. In James chapter 4, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Why do nations wage war? Why can't we all just get along? Don't they come from your desires to battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. See, when we give in to our sinful and selfish desires, when we're only looking out for ourselves... Of course we're going to be at conflict with other people because they're only looking out for themselves. When we aren't turning to God, when we're not depending on Him for our needs, we're simply chasing after these things like pagans. The source of all our conflict is that we don't have peace with God. We don't have the peace of God. Our Old Testament reading teaches us that that when our minds are steadfastly trusting in God, He will keep us in His perfect peace. But when we try to manipulate people to get our way, when we use the ends to justify the means, we're going to have conflict, right? So before you talk to someone you're in conflict with or someone who has hurt you deeply, I want to advise you to stop and pray. Fix your mind steadfastly on the Lord and trust in Him. Why? Why should you pray before you go to that person? Why, why would I pray before I would approach somebody that I'm at odds with? Because I tend to forget that I have peace with God. And that I don't need to change somebody else to have peace. I forget that I don't have to be right. And I don't have to always get my way. I need to remember that God is enough. And all this other stuff is just details. And when I can stop and think about that, then I can not only have that peace of God, but I can begin to have peace with others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been called not just to be at peace with others, but we have been called to bring peace to others, to be ambassadors, to be agents of peace. We've been given the ministry of of helping other people be reconciled to God, sharing with them the gospel so they can know the peace of God, so they can be at peace with God. 
It's when I remember that I'm at peace with God and I have the peace of God that I can be a peacemaker and help other people experience that peace as well. You know, there's a reason the nine virtues are listed in the order that they are. When I have the love of God in my heart and I have that joy that comes from within me regardless of my circumstances, then of course I can face any situation around me with the peace of God. Right? Because my hope is not found in people or in things or in circumstances. It's found in Him. I'm set free from selfishness and from shallowness and I can have peace. Now before we come to this table this morning, I want to ask you, do you have peace with God? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Can you really sit at this table and celebrate it as where Christ signed the peace treaty between you and God? You can't if you don't already have peace with God. Paul warns us not to partake of this supper unless we know that we are at peace with God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you know that you've been forgiven by His grace, then you are welcome to enjoy this table with us today. If not, then here in a moment I invite you to come and to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and know the peace of God. But I also want to ask you, are you at peace with others? You know, Jesus tells us not to bring our gift to the altar if our brother has something against us. He says, leave your gift there. Go me made right with your brother and then come back. Who this morning do you need to make peace with? And before you partake of this supper, you need to resolve in your heart at the very least, to go and make peace with that person today. You may even not want to partake of this meal until you know that you've done everything within your ability to be at peace with them. As far as it is possible with you, live at peace with all people. So as we sing this hymn of invitation, I ask you to search your heart. Do you know the peace of God? Are you at peace with God? Are you striving to live at peace with others? Maybe this morning God is calling you to unite with this church family as a people of peace, as a people that we strive together to let Christ's peace be the umpire in our hearts so that we can be one. Would you come and unite with this church fellowship? However God leads, let's pray together and then let's respond. Father, we love you. We thank you for the great price that Christ paid on Calvary's cross that we might be made at peace with you, Father. And I do pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't have peace with you, if they've not confessed their sins and asked you to forgive them and save them, I pray that today would be the day that they would move from being your enemies to being your sons and daughters. Father, if there's anyone in this room who's not at peace with someone else, a family member, a friend, someone in this congregation, I pray you would stir their hearts to go immediately today and do all that they can to make that right to apologize, to confess their sin, to ask for forgiveness, or to grant forgiveness. May the peace of Christ rule in our hearts as one body you have called us to peace. Amen. Would you...